What's California's big new EV goal? And what is copper mining like in Indonesia? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Beckettsphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hope, a climate communicator. Today is Friday, August 26th. Let's jump right into today's news. We have a heavy extreme weather event to start, so brace yourself. The eighth cycle of the monsoon season in Pakistan has killed at least 903 people, 326 of which were children. Thousands of people have no food or shelter. More than 504,000 livestock have died. This is the worst monsoon season the area has ever seen. Balochistan is the worst impacted, seeing 305% more rain than usual. And more rain is still to come. China announced it would provide humanitarian aid, which is impressive considering it's in its worst heat wave on record. Time for a climate study. A new analysis published in the journal Nature Communications determined that between 80 and 90 percent of Americans underestimate how much their peers are concerned about climate change and support transformative mitigation efforts like an 100 percent clean energy mandate or a carbon tax. Americans say only 37 to 43 percent of Americans support climate mitigation policies, but really it's between 66 and 80 percent. That's a huge difference. Three reasons the study gave for this disconnect are one, Conservatives underestimate support for climate change policies because they think their beliefs are more widely held than they actually are, something called a false consensus effect. Two, it can cause conservatives to stay in an echo chamber where most of the media doesn't support clean energy policies. And three, liberals think their views aren't as widely held as they actually are, something called false uniqueness. This is also due to the media for a long time giving equal time to climate deniers as scientists. This disconnect on both sides is not good because something as big as this requires collective action. But I think the high percentage of support is positive. I worry it's dropped since last year due to reason number two. We have several climate victories today. Germany saw a 22% jump in solar installations in the first six months of this year, according to the German Solar Association. This includes everything from small rooftop solar to large commercial solar farm installations. It's mainly due to an increase in energy prices. Meanwhile, analysts have determined that the energy price for the 100 gigawatts of renewable energy the UK will get online by 2025 and 2026 will be nine times cheaper than gas. That new clean energy supply will represent about a fifth of the UK's energy demand. The largest percent, 7 gigawatts, comes from offshore wind. And for the first time, offshore wind is actually cheaper than onshore wind and solar. Clean energy suppliers have agreed to keep energy prices around £48 per megawatt hour in today's money. In comparison, gas currently costs £446 per megawatt hour. By the way, most of these projects are effectively subsidy-free, so that low price is just economics. It will cut average annual energy bills by £58 by the late 2020s. The U.S.'s largest automaking state has made a big move. California voted yesterday to ban the sale of new gas cars by 2035. Earlier targets include having 35% of new passenger vehicles sold by 2026 produce zero emissions to reach 68% by 2030. That's quite ambitious, and it will definitely light a fire underneath car companies' butts to ramp up their EV collections. Transportation is a top-emitting sector in the U.S., so this is very important. Washington state has already stated that it would follow California's lead, and 15 other states are likely to follow suit. This goal is more in line with keeping emissions at 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. But can car companies meet it? 
the president of the Alliance for Automotive Innovation, which represents large U.S. and foreign automakers, says it's going to be extremely challenging. There's a lot going on right now relating to supply chain issues, half-baked recycling efforts, critical mining availability, inflation, etc. State regulators say that it will cut greenhouse gas emissions from passenger vehicles by more than 50% in 2040 compared to the levels that were expected without the policy. California now has to send its final rule to the Federal Environmental Protection Agency to request a waiver, which President Biden has signaled he will approve. This needs to happen before states can officially follow what California leads. California joins Canada, Britain, and nine European Union countries in committing to cut emissions between 2030 and 2040. Biden wants half the cars on the road to be electric by 2030. Right now, we're only at 6%. And time for some climate fails. BBC News and Greenpeace are calling out Google for lowering its emissions estimates on airplane flights, in some cases by half. This is because they only cover carbon dioxide emissions now and not other greenhouse gases like chemicals and contrails. Contrails are chemicals that create visible streaks in the sky, and they have been found to trap heat. Greenpeace and BBC know this because Google's emissions calculations information can easily be found on GitHub. Now Google is totally underestimating emissions for the most emissions-heavy form of travel. Only calculating carbon emissions and nothing else drops aviation's global climate impact from representing 3.5% of global contribution down to 2%. Google hosts 9 out of 10 online searches, so this could have huge implications on people's travel decisions. Google says it strongly believes curl tail emissions should be included, but it removed counting it in emissions estimates because it doesn't think sufficient research on its climate impact have been done. It says it's working with academic experts to improve its curtail emissions calculations. It better work fast because Google's flight emissions calculations are used by the majority of airlines as an industry standard. On the August 12th episode, we talked about how Myanmar is becoming a sacrifice zone for mining critical minerals needed for the clean energy transition. Now we need to talk about another sacrifice zone, this one being Indonesia's island Sulawesi. This island was home to fishermen and white sand beaches, but now the beaches are red and fishing has been banned by the mining companies that have taken over to mine for copper. Indonesia is the largest copper producer in the world, and copper is an essential material for electric cars and many other clean energy technologies. Now fishermen have been forced to work in the dangerous copper mines. It pays better and more consistently than fishing, at about $200 a month, but it comes with many environmental and health costs. Drinking water in the local village is filled with mud, red dust is in people's homes, and poor mining practices have made landslides a common occurrence. Landslides are now so common on the island that children aren't getting an adequate education because the school is constantly having to shudder. These landslides kill thousands. The Philippines experienced the same problem and have since put a moratorium on copper mining because it was so bad. The mining is done by a combination of smaller companies, state-owned enterprises, and industrial giants like Brazil's Vale. Car companies like Tesla are constantly increasing their demand for copper as they work to electrify vehicles worldwide. And a Google timeline of the mining part in Sulawesi shows a dramatic increase in mining over the last three years. There's not really any such thing as clean copper mining, though regulations can surely be improved to protect locals from health impacts and landslides. Mining is a necessary evil, but the reversible damage to places like Sulawesi emphasize the need to prioritize a recycling industry to make this phase of the clean energy transition as short as possible. Speaking of necessary evils, the car company Ford announced it's letting off 3,000 white-collar workers in the U.S., Canada, and India to reorient itself towards producing electric vehicles. 
it's hiring new people for its EV and battery-related facilities. Electric vehicles still represent a small portion of its portfolio, but the company is investing $50 billion from now until 2026 to ramp up its EV production. These kinds of uncomfortable shifts are likely to become more common occurrences in the coming years, as such a big shift will absolutely have growing pains. Blue-collared workers will likely experience layoffs too, as electric vehicles require fewer parts, therefore requiring fewer workers. I wouldn't consider this news story a climate fail as I would for unsustainable and unregulated mining practices, but it transitioned nicely from the last story. I want to end today updating y'all on the whole Germany-Canada hydrogen LNG thing. For a recap, Germany's chancellor visited Canada to see if they would export liquefied natural gas to them to help them wean off Russian gas. Germany and Canada struck a deal for Canada to export LNG and eventually switch it to green liquefied hydrogen, which is made via clean energy, to Germany by 2025. Experts have called this deal unrealistic because LNG and liquefied hydrogen are not the same things and transporting them the same way doesn't work. I'll leave a link below that explains more about the differences, but basically experts think it's basically a greenwashed fossil fuel deal. This seems to be a trend with Germany's chancellor, who's supposed to be representing the German Green Party. He encouraged an LNG terminal in Argentina, gas production in Senegal, and a pipeline to bring gas from Algeria through Spain and France to Germany. At home, Schultz also supports the building of two terminals to import LNG from overseas. He doesn't seem to get that this infrastructure takes time to build, time Germany doesn't have. These moves also don't align with Germany's goal to phase out gas from its energy supply by 2035. He justifies all these moves by saying gas infrastructure can be used for green hydrogen, which isn't necessarily true. Hydrogen leaks can also contribute to global warming by binding with chemicals that would otherwise take methane out of the atmosphere. Stanford engineering professor Mark Jacobson says hydrogen leaks are seven times more common than gas, as molecules are smaller and easier to escape. These leaks are expensive and dangerous. Jacobson recommends hydrogen be made near where it's used, like near an airport or steel facilities. Hydrogen can be transported better by turning it into ammonia for fertilizer, but it doesn't make sense to revert it back to gas for energy use at that point. And that was your climate recap for Friday, August 26th. If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Becksphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.